0: So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, we're going to take a quick break from our series in the book of Ephesians to talk a little more specifically about the Lord's Supper, although actually it's the study in Ephesians that's really spurred us on this morning to think again about the ascension of Christ. Christ not only rising from the dead, but also being raised up to heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father, and we'll see. We saw last week how Paul talked about that in one aspect of, of its glorious blessings to us, and we're going to reflect a little bit more this morning about how it is an ongoing blessing and how it fits in with the Lord's Supper. So let's read from the Book of Acts. Uh, you'll find it there in your bulletin, along with the, the sermon outline. I encourage you to have that uh, that page, I guess it's two pages, uh, ready because there's a number of other scriptures we'll bring in. We'll read from Acts the actual account of Jesus being taken up to heaven. But then we'll bring in other New Testament writings that help to explain why this is so significant. But let's first read from the book of Acts, chapter 1, uh, verses 6 through 11. Listen to God's word. So when they had come together, they asked him, that's the 12 disciples uh, asking Jesus, or the 11 asking Jesus, "'Will you, at this time, restore the kingdom to Israel?' Behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Father, bless your word. Use it among us. Strengthen us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus, on that very night that he was betrayed, just hours before his death, you remember he was gathered in the upper room with his disciples around the table. And when he was there, he made this really strange statement, when you think about it. Here's what he said to them. Gathered in that upper room, he says to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. It is to your advantage that I go away. So there's Jesus with the disciples at the table. and says, actually, you know what? It's better that I leave. It's better for you that I leave. Remember, that's the very table where he institutes the Lord's Supper. That, that meal of remembrance, that meal of fellowship with the Lord. And there he is celebrating that meal with them face to face. And in the midst of that very evening, he says, yeah it's better that I go. Maybe we could go so far as to say this, that what we do this morning around this table is better than what those disciples enjoyed at that table in the upper room. That what we have here is better than what they had there. Really? Really? How could that be? Well, big part of the answer, the ascension of Christ. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. How Christ, not just raised from the dead, but ascended up into heaven, means glory for his people. How it means that the blessings which we endure are, enjoy are rich and the confidence which we have is sure. It's true of all of life, but In particular, we'll think how it affects our celebration of the Lord's Supper and makes this an even more glorious thing than maybe we're tempted to think. We'll we'll look at various writings from the New Testament along with that Acts passage and make four points about the Ascension and try to, at each point, tie it in to the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So they're there in your outline. And the first one, we've entitled this way, The Enthroned King and the Need for His Favor. So, Let's read what Peter, the Apostle Peter, writes under the inspiration of the Spirit. Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Or Paul from Ephesians 1. Uh, That God worked in him, the power that God worked in him, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Jesus ascended up into heaven enthroned as the king. Now Jesus, from the very moment of his conception, the very moment his incarnation begins, always was the messianic king. Right, the 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 Magi who came uh, and asked that question were absolutely right. Where is the one who is born King of the Jews? Right, throughout his entire incarnation, he was and is the Messianic King. But raised up and ascended into heaven, his kingship takes on an entirely new phase, an entirely new dimension. The King who came to earth humbling himself to the very lowest place, conquering his enemies in the process. Now that king's been raised up, now that king has been uh, has ascended on high, and he is enthroned at God's right hand, the Father's right hand, the right hand. In the ancient world, that's the place of authority, power, rule. That's where the king is enthroned, King Jesus. Um, It's exactly what the Old Testament predicted. Uh, Remember that reading in Psalm 2 this morning? Uh, That's what the psalm was talking about. Uh, That's what it was predicting would happen. The verses are printed again in your outline. Speaking of God uh, talking to his enemies, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king upon Zion... My holy hill. And it's here. Christ ascended into heaven in that heavenly Mount Zion, and he is enthroned, ruling and reigning as king. Uh, The ascension of Christ is the enthronement of the Lord Jesus. So, how does that impact you? How does that impact me? Well, it depends. Are you a friend of the king or an enemy of the king? Maggie and I just this week finished up watching one of those PBS miniseries, and and this one was a period piece. It was all about the reign of King Henry VIII. And you quickly got the idea uh, that there is a huge difference between a friend of the king and an enemy of the king. Everything turns on it. Friend of the king? Well, then Exalted, You have blessings. You have riches. Enemy of the king? Yeah, it doesn't go well. In the tower? Worse. Friend? Enemy? Makes all the difference. Well, if that's true with an earthly king, how much more the king of kings? It all depends. If he is enthroned, it all depends on whether you are a friend or an enemy. Did you catch how Psalm 2 puts it? As there God speaks uh, about his enemies. Did you notice how it's said how the, the implication there or the announcement there, the even just the announcement that the king has been enthroned has an effect? Right? What's the effect? The mere announcement of the king's enthronement terrifies his enemies. You can understand why. If the king is in the place of reign and rule and authority and you're an enemy of the king, you're in trouble. The day of reckoning is coming, right? We we know that even with earthly kings. How much more? With the king of kings who promises he's going to return in final judgment. And here's the bad news. The bad news is, uh, by nature, we are all enemies of the king. That's really what it means to be a sinner, Biblically, uh, sin is just not, well, you had a bad day. Sin is rebellion against the king. Now, when you break God's law, when I break God's law, our hearts are crying out, God, I don't want you to be king of the universe. I want you off the throne, and I want to rule. If someone did that in the court of Henry VIII, that person is in trouble. That's treason. The penalty is death. Sin against the Lord, the King of Kings? Should we be surprised that God says the wages of sin is death? And that's all of us, sinners, both by nature and then by practice, day after day after day, that rebellion in our hearts. What hope is there? If the king is reigning and we're his enemies, what hope do we have? Well... We need some way where enemies can be turned into friends, and that's exactly what God has done. That's exactly what this meal proclaims—the uh, God's own plan, the King's own work. It's not something we can do, but something He has done. And do you see what this what this meal proclaims? Right, the elements represent something; they point beyond themselves. Right, the bread, His body given; uh, the the cup, His blood poured out. Well. It, Wow, it's, it almost looks like symbols of an execution. Yeah, that's the kind of thing it is. It, it is almost something out of a scene uh, in, in one of those miniseries where an enemy is executed. That's exactly the point. What we have here is is someone bearing the guilt of treason. But it's not us, though we're the guilty ones. Uh, What we have here is the king himself coming to this earth and taking our guilt. Bearing our punishment. He's not guilty. We're the traitors. And he's executed in our place. So that bearing our guilt, we go free. This is why the, the enthronement of the king is very, very good news. If you're trusting in this Jesus... Right, in the same way we will go through the, the motions, right, and, and the elements handed, given to you, and you receive them. If that's the a picture of your life, you didn't do it, but well, you you're receiving this free gift, trusting in Jesus, then the enthronement of the king is very good news. Because he has done a work to turn enemies into friends, and therefore you can be confident before him. Because you can say, the king of kings is my friend. I'm a friend of the king. I'm safe. All because of what he's done. Right? The enthronement of the king and the need for, uh, for his favor. It's done here in Christ. Okay, then we move ahead to our second point. And if it really flows right out of that. The interceding priest and the foundation of his plea... So here we kind of get into something that is very graphically different than what the disciples enjoyed uh, in that upper room. We have something that they didn't at that moment. That we, at this very moment, have one at the right hand of God, in the very throne room uh, of the Lord, pleading our case. Praying for us. That's the idea of intercession. It's someone pleading your case. uh, Someone praying for you. That's Jesus. And it's all there because he has ascended up into heaven. So here's two verses. Romans 8. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Or Hebrews where you get this image of Christ as the priest. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. If you have drawn near to God through Christ, right? you're trusting in Christ, drawing near to God, trusting in him, then you can be confident that at this very moment... Jesus isn't here on earth. He has ascended into heaven and he's there with a very particular task pleading for you. Arguing your case uh, before the Lord. Like a a priest of the Old Testament. Remember those those times, it was their job, the priests, to intercede for the people. To plead their case before God, to represent them. Maybe you think of of Moses. Uh, Remember after the Israelites had sinned against God by worshiping the golden calf, making this idol, and then bowing down to it, right? A very graphic illustration of, of cosmic treason. Uh, yeah, we don't like that God. We're going to make our own God, and we're going to worship that, right? There's a good example of sin as treason. And, of course, they're guilty and worthy of death, and God announces he's going he's gonna to wipe them out. And in comes Moses as the intercessor, the very role God gave him to do, and Moses pleads their case. Lord, forgive them. Uh, Lord, Lord, go with them. Right? They don't deserve it, but, but forgive them and go with them anyway. And, and God is pleased to answer. One who intercedes. Well, Jesus is the ultimate priest. The ultimate mediator and intercessor. In fact, the, the New Testament ties that to his ascension. Now, that is why he ascends up. That is what he's doing at the right hand of the Father. Pleading our case. But it does raise this question, what's the foundation of his plea? What's, what's the basis of his argument? Right? If you, if you go to court and you have a lawyer pleading your case, well, that's good, but you really hope he has a good case. You really hope that the, the legal and factual basis of his plea is good and sound, because that's what's going to get you off. If a lawyer makes a really bad case and has a really bad case, you're still in trouble. So so what is Jesus pleading? What's his case? Is it, forgive him, forgive her. They really deserved it. They really, they've earned it. They've tried really hard and loved you so much. Father, forgive them. Father, bless them. If that's the basis of Christ's case, we're all in trouble. Because we haven't earned it. We haven't deserved it. Go back to point one, and cosmic treason. But the good news is, there is a better case that Jesus had to please. In fact, it's it's again represented right here. Uh, Christ's own work for us, uh, his salvation for us, uh, his body given for us, his blood shed for us. Now, we, we try to remind ourselves as we come to the Lord's table that these physical elements are not the physical body and blood of the Lord. They are signs. They point to his physical body and blood. But that, of course, begs a question. If Christ's body and blood is not here, where is Christ's body and blood? You ever think about that? He was raised up. The disciples' saw Him go up. So where is the body and blood of Christ right now at this very moment? Well, the ascension tells you, at the right hand of the Father. There is the the incarnate Jesus, physical, humanity Jesus. Yes, it's a resurrected, glorified humanity, but but it's humanity nonetheless before God himself interceding for you. The gospel writers actually had this other little element to it, right? Resurrected, glorified body of Jesus— but they had this little, this little note that even this glorified body still bears the recognizable marks of his crucifixion. Right? You, you could see the nail prints in his hand. You, you could see the the wound in his side from the spear on the cross. The very wounds he received on the cross, uh, you could still recognize it. You could back then, which means you can still right now. Think of that for a minute. That the one who is pleading your case, believer, before the Father, uh, is the one who is there in physical humanity, still bearing the very scars that purchased your salvation. They're there before the Father. there's, There's his case. There's your case. Not that you did a great job or you're worthy enough, but but that he died. He, his body really was broken. His blood really was poured out. And those, those very wounds, those very scars are before the Father, even now as Christ pleads for you and for me and for all his people down through the ages. Forgive, bless, build up, save to the uttermost. Is it no wonder that Romans can conclude, wow, we can have confidence, right? That Romans 8 verse... Christ interceding? Paul says, who is to condemn? Who in the world could condemn you if that Christ uh, with that case is pleading for you? Oh. See what kind of confidence we can have? And you see how we're reminded of it right here? Uh, the body and blood of the Lord given uh, for you. Confidence. Confidence. Two more quick points. The present Savior. And the basis of his nearness. So, Christ, before he ascends up into heaven, uh, he makes another statement to his disciples. He says to them, remember Matthew 28, And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you always, to the end of the age, and then he ascends to heaven. Where'd he go? With you? I don't see it. He explains a little more in John's Gospel. See if you can catch the connection on what this looks like. John 14. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you This Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you the Spirit who you already know. Almost definitely, they know him because they've seen the Spirit in Jesus. Uh, The very Holy Spirit that anointed and empowered the the Messianic King on earth. They've seen him, and now Jesus says, That Spirit is going to be in you. I'm going to give him to you. In fact, he says, That's why I'm leaving, so that I can give him to you. And then he immediately ties it to, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How does Jesus, who ascends, end up with his people forever? He sends his Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The the, the one who is one substance with the Father and the Son. uh, The one who is repeatedly called the Spirit of Christ. That Spirit now poured out upon the church. It's because of the ascension, Acts tells us. That he was raised up, receives that gift from the Father, then pours it out on his people, the church. It's Christ not leaving us as orphans. It's Christ coming to us in the power of the Holy Spirit, present with us always, everywhere, present with us here at the table. How is Christ present here? We said, not physically, right? His Physical body and blood are are at the right hand of the Father. So how is Christ with us? How do we have fellowship with him? It's through the Holy Spirit. In that way, even better than what the disciples enjoyed in that upper room, because we have that spirit and that nearness and that fellowship here, as do believers in China and Russia and Africa, and down through the ages in every part of the world, Christ with his people. And that won't change. Because he's ascended up into heaven, and then he's come to us uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit. So one more connection, and then we'll go to the Lord's table. And that's this connection is the returning Lord and the taste of heaven. Did you catch in Acts how those angelic figures that appear, how they tie the return of Jesus to his going away, as if they're all baked together, right? Right? Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, the angels say that the ascension has baked into it the idea, oh, he's coming back the same way. The one implies the other. Uh, And then Jesus explains to us what he's doing in the meantime. And you have that verse from John 14. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He goes. It implies he's coming back in the same way. And in the meantime, what is he doing but getting a place ready for us, Preparing that, that kingdom home for all his people, who he has turned from enemies into friends. Uh, that fullness of the kingdom that Revelation says is, is going is to come with him in fullness. And, not at all a coincidence, that fullness of the kingdom that's pictured as a great meal, celebration. A great feast. So you see the connection with what we're going to do here. Uh, We have a a, a type of feast here. And what this is, is a little taste, a little preview of what is to come. Fellowship with the Lord Jesus. Celebrating his salvation. uh, His presence with us. We get it. A little taste of it here. But the fullness is coming. And the fact that he is on high, well, it, it declares he's coming back. And he's going to bring that kingdom with him. And in the meantime, he's preparing it for his people. So, ascension and communion. In part, it means that what we enjoy here is even better than what those disciples enjoyed in the upper room. And that's that's not just a point of theological trivia. It really ties into the very core of our hope, of our salvation. Because it means that the king who conquered his enemies has now been raised up and enthroned and ruling and reigning right now. It means that king is interceding, pleading the case of his people, even with his own body and blood. It means that enemies are turned into friends through faith in him. It means this one is present with us through the Holy Spirit and he's coming again in fullness. That's the very core of our hope. And we get a a concentrated view at it here, but it's really what sustains us day after day after day. Confidence, peace, joy, hope. But hopefully you've seen at every point, it's only in Christ. It's only coming to God through him. There's no other way. Uh, there's no other way for an enemy to be turned into a friend. There's no other way to, to have one pleading your case for you. You need Jesus. So if you're not trusting in this Jesus, uh, turning from trusting yourself and, and, and trusting in him and his work and following him as your king, if you're not trusting in this Jesus, this, this hope, this confidence, it, it's, you're not going to find it anywhere else. It's only in Christ. But that's good news because here is freely offered to all of us that we believe in the Lord Jesus and we're, we're rescuing enemies into friends, confidence, joy, forever. That's pretty good. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, your power and your glory, your salvation. Lord, fill us with joy and hope, confident in our Savior, we pray. In his name, amen.